Our lectionary gospels this year take us, our lectionary readings, sorry, this year take us through the gospel of Luke. And right now we're in the middle of Luke in a section that has various teachings and parables of Jesus. Some of these are Luke's version of teachings that we know from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, like how to pray, not to worry about tomorrow, parables about what God's kingdom is like. And in the middle of this collection of Jesus' teachings, Luke puts the story of Jesus' healing, of Jesus visiting a synagogue on the Sabbath, and of what happened there. It's a story in which Jesus demonstrates the stuff he's been teaching about. We're going to hear that story. I'm going to read it in a few minutes. But first, I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise to prepare ourselves for hearing it. We're going to get, need to get out of our seats for doing this, and we're going to need to move around. I love these benches, but they do get in the way sometimes. So let's try not to be hampered by them. I'd like us to spend a couple of minutes walking around and talking with each other, which is not something we seem to have any trouble doing at East Chestnut Street. But I have a couple additional instructions. To begin with, after we stand up, if your first name begins with the letters A through H, I would like you to bend over like this. And we're going to walk around and talk to each other. So I want you to do this until you hear my bell and then just freeze. All right, go ahead. Let's do it. like you to reverse. So those of you who are standing up, bend over. And those of you who are bent over, you can stand up and carry on.
right, you can go back to your seats. A reading from Luke chapter 13, beginning with verse 10 and reading to verse 17. At that very time, oops, sorry, I'm at the wrong, here we are. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue Indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things that he was doing. We don't know her name. We don't even know where she lived. This happens, we're told, in one of the synagogues, but the account is imprecise in terms of location or timing. We don't know exactly what her illness was. Luke describes it as a spirit that had crippled her. Jesus says she was bound by Satan. What we do know is that she had not stood up straight for 18 years. 18 years. I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to be bent over for a minute. What happens if you can't stand up straight? How do you feel? Walking around bent double. How do you interact with people? The ones who are walking up, standing up straight. It's hard to see other people's faces. It's hard to carry on a conversation. It's hard for others to hear you or to interact with you. Eighteen years. We don't know her age, but it's quite possible that her condition 
has prevented her from being able to marry or to have children. Relegating her to the margins, denying her the expected role for women in her society. I picture her sliding into the synagogue quietly, sort of apologetically, slinking into the back on the women's side, keeping her head down, figuratively as well as literally, not expecting anyone to notice her. She doesn't approach Jesus like many of the people that Jesus heals. She doesn't ask for healing. In fact, she may be a bit reluctant to be the center of attention. One of those invisible people on the margins. A couple of months ago, the Chestnut Housing folks offered us the chance to read the book Evicted. It's a book written by a Harvard sociologist who did research on issues of housing and eviction in Milwaukee by following several families who lived in the lower income sections of town. It's a very good book to read. I recommend it, but it's also a difficult book to read. The author explores the issues faced by people who struggle to make their rent every month and who lose their housing, sometimes repeatedly, due to circumstances that are often not of their making. And he looks at how they cope and how they struggle. I started trying to read Evicted on a day when I had worked with two different clients to try to find money to pay their overdue rent so that they would not receive a notice to quit, which is the first stage in an eviction process. And I almost put the book down. I almost said, this is too much. I can't read this. It was just way too close to home. The people profiled in Evicted are constantly moving, trying to find housing that's secure and safe. Because they don't have a bank account or a steady income, they're forced to take housing that doesn't require a large deposit or high rent. And so it's often very poor housing. And when something goes wrong with the apartment, when the water stops working, or there's a blocked sewer line, or the plaster collapses, they're afraid to call the landlord for fear they'll just be put out of the apartment. If they exercise their legal rights as renters and complain about the problem to the authorities and the place gets, expect, gets inspected, they might lose their home because it gets shut down as unsafe or because the landlord's upset at them because they got written up. If they call the police because someone there is fighting or threatening violence, they might lose their home because the landlord doesn't want the place to get a bad reputation. In one case, a woman who finally found a place for herself and her children lost it when her young son, innocently, pulled the alarm and brought the fire truck there on a false alarm. The people profiled in Evicted are bent over, not by illness, but by poverty, and sometimes poor choices, 
and by a system that forces them to constantly start over with very little to build on and no safety net. I love C.S. Lewis's fiction. I love the Narnia Chronicles, of course, where you can tell that evil is reigning because it's always winter but never Christmas. I also love the Space Trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra and That Hideous Strength. And I find it interesting that in those stories, the beings on the other planets describe Earth, our planet, our society, as bent. That's Lewis's word for sin, for the human condition, bent, not quite straight, not quite right, bent. Lewis is hinting that we all are part of that condition. We all are in some way bent. Even though I have a secure living situation, unlike the folks described in Evicted, even though I'm not physically bent over like the woman in the book of Luke, there are ways in which I'm also bent over. I'm constrained or limited or marked by emotions or circumstances or struggles that keep me from living the life that God wants for God's children. Jesus sees this woman and reaches out to free her from her affliction. That's what Jesus does. He notices. He reaches out to those on the margins, to those who are suffering, to those who need help. But she's not the only one in this story. And in fact, although Jesus addresses her, we don't hear her response and her thoughts and her words. The conversation Jesus has is with somebody else. I'm a person who likes order. I like careful planning. I like consistency and predictability. And if you know me well, you know that when things don't go the way I had planned or envisioned, I can get really mad. So maybe I should think again about who represents me in this story. Maybe I'm not the woman after all. Maybe I'm more like the leader of the synagogue. After all, doesn't he have a reasonable request? This is the Sabbath. This is the special day set aside for worship. There are six other days. You could do healings any of those other days. In fact, you could even do them here. Just not today. Why do you have to mess up our carefully planned process and structure on this day? Why do you have to interrupt our order of worship? Why do you have to sin by healing her on the Sabbath? Honoring the Sabbath is a high value for this man, and it's a high value throughout the Bible. Kevin read earlier some verses from the prophet Isaiah, in which he calls people to act in ways that invite God's favor. And those ways include helping the poor and not speaking evil of others, 
and not oppressing others, but the list culminates with honoring the Sabbath. Starting at verse 13, if you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and then the Lord will bless you. Maybe the synagogue leader sees Jesus' healing of the woman as an example of going his own way, serving his own interests, pursuing his own affairs. We don't assume that Jesus' actions stem from a desire to burnish his reputation or to pad his pockets, but for this man, healing on the Sabbath might look like all of that and more. It violates something that is most central to his faith. Now, we don't know the end of his story. Luke's account tells us about the woman and about the joy and celebration of the crowds when she's healed. Luke tells us that Jesus' opponents, meaning I assume this synagogue leader and maybe some others who agreed with him, were put to shame. But we don't know what that means longer term for the leader of the synagogue. I'd like to think, though, that this interaction might also have in some way healed him. It might be that Jesus' words brought him up short, made him reconsider, made him see things in a new light. It might be that he went home and pondered what the Sabbath is for and how God might intend to bring life and healing on the Sabbath. It might be that he looked again at his own tendency to insist on the letter of the law before any consideration of human need. Maybe, along with the healing of the woman, this could also be a story of helping the synagogue leader to become less bent. You might have noticed that we're in the midst of a political campaign. Anybody notice that? And a few months ago, I started hearing references to the use of dog whistle politics. I didn't know what that meant, so I asked my son, and he explained it to me. Have you ever had a dog whistle? When you blow into a dog whistle, you can't hear a sound, but the dog can. Dog's ears hear different frequencies from humans. So somebody helpfully invented a whistle that people can use to call a dog, but that doesn't bother other people because human ears can't hear that frequency. So dog whistle speech is speech that sends a signal that some people can hear, but other people might not notice. If you Google dog whistle speech or dog whistle politics, one of the first things that pops up is the sort of class, as, as the classic example, is Ronald Reagan when he launched his 1980 campaign for the presidency. 
To start his campaign, Reagan went to the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi, and his speech sounded some of his typical themes, including the problems of big government and the need to reduce government interference in people's lives. And Reagan used the words, I believe in states' rights. Now, on the surface, if you read Reagan's speech, it would sound like generic political speech about government and the importance of strengthening local-level institutions, about what we call subsidiarity, which means the primacy of the local institution before the large central one. But Reagan didn't give that speech just anywhere. He gave it in Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is the town where three civil rights workers were murdered in 1964. By going to that town and giving that speech there, Reagan was saying, I support white people's interests. I stand with white people against civil rights for black folks. Reagan was blowing a dog whistle that told his listeners that he was on their side and that if he were elected president, he would stand up for them and not for those other folks. At a number of places in the gospel, we hear the expression children of Abraham or sons of Abraham. It seems to have been a common expression in Jesus' time, and it's an expression I would call a dog whistle. It seems straightforward. If you're a Jew, you are a descendant of Abraham. That's how it works, a child of Abraham. To us, many years later, that seems obvious. But to some of those people in Jesus' audience, it had a very specific meaning. It meant you're an insider. You belong. You're holy. You're pure. You're blessed by God. In fact, Jesus once accused the Jewish authorities of boasting about being children of Abraham. The assumption is not everyone qualifies. Jesus takes that dog whistle expression and he turns it upside down. Check out the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. After Zacchaeus comes down from his tree and agrees to repay the people he's defrauded, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. That must have made his listeners grind their teeth. A tax collector is a son of Abraham? Now, if you check the concordance for this expression, you'll find a number of references to the phrase, children of Abraham, or descendants of Abraham, or to the phrase son or sons of Abraham. But you'll find only one reference to the expression daughter of Abraham. It only appears one place in the Bible, and it's right here. Not only is she recognized, not only is she healed, 
Not only is her affliction removed, Jesus calls her a daughter of Abraham. This woman who lurks in the shadows, who's so insignificant, is included. She's valued. She's a child of God. Jesus is the incarnation of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. That means if we want to know what God is like, Jesus is who we should look at. Jesus, in his teachings and actions, personifies God for us. Jesus shows us what God's reign would look like. And Jesus reaches out to everyone, to those on the margins and to those in positions of power. And Jesus calls everyone to live by those kingdom of God values, to honor every person, to do justice and to love mercy, to be channels of healing and hope. Jesus includes and values everyone. And Jesus calls all of us to stand up straight. No matter what bends us over, whether it's a physical ailment or material struggles or systems that trap us, whether it's emotional needs that constrain us, or whether it's a fixation on good practices that can blind us to the needs of others. No matter how we are bent over, Jesus reaches out to free us. That doesn't mean things are perfect. This isn't magic. We still live in a very bent world. We still wait for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. That's why we do what we can see to do. We feed people who are hungry. We help find housing for people who are homeless. We welcome refugees. We stand up and speak out against the systems that trap and bind people. We do these things because we are followers of Jesus. And we do these things to serve the God Jesus shows us. The God, in the words of Psalm 103, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our life from the pit, who crowns us with glory and honor. Jesus shows us a God who loves and heals us all. I invite you to stand up. And now to bend over. And now hear Jesus' words to you. You are known and loved by God. You are set free of whatever binds you. You are sons and daughters of Abraham. Stand up straight. Thanks be to God.